Welcome to the AWB Podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Washington Business. In this episode, Vice President of Government Affairs Gary Chandler and the Government Affairs team give us a look ahead at the 2019 legislative session. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. I want you to know ahead of time, this is still casual Friday for us. It's our last casual Friday before we start the the big week off next week and having to have our ties and suit coats on and stuff. So, uh, but thank you very much for joining us for our webinar today to talk about what do we see uh, that is going to happen in uh, this next uh, session. As everybody knows, session starts on um, Monday the 14th for a 105-day session. Uh, it's supposed to end on April the 28th. We'll see. Uh, lots say that when one party controls all three bodies, they should get done on time, but most generally when all three bodies are controlled by the same, uh, they have inward fights and they don't get done on time. So we'll see. I'm done trying to guess if we're going to get done in 105, but if I was to guess, Uh-oh. I don't think we're going to get done in 105. Oh, um, so we'll see uh, how the session goes on. Uh, we'll probably do more of these webinars as the session progresses. I know several chambers have been already setting up with me to do weekly calls, so if some of you want those done, uh, please let me know. Starting off in the session, as everybody remembers, after the elections were over, the makeups of both of the House and the Senate are different. Uh, in the Senate, uh, the last 2018, uh, it was 25-24 controlled by the Democrats and 50-48 in the House. After the elections, they've got a lot stronger margin of Democrats in both bodies. In the Senate, it's 28-21. And in the House, it's 57-48. So there's quite a bit difference in the numbers than we've had in the past. Um, So I think one of our big issues going into this session is certainly uh, going to be around the budget. And that's why we'll start off with Clay. Clay will talk about the budget. We've seen the governor's. We always hope that the governor's budget is the high watermark, and hopefully the legislature will go down from that high water mark and not go up and above uh, where the governor is is at. One of the things that we have already been stressing to uh, the governor's staff, uh, we had an association meeting in here the other day and met with the governor's staff and all leaders of all four caucuses and expressed our concern certainly over the governor's budget uh, with the increase that he's asking for is about a 22% increase over the last biennium. And our growth is still going strong. Our economy is still growing in the state. A lot of us are still cautious. We don't know where we're at that tipping point. When is this economy going to take a downturn? But we certainly need to be planning for it. And is now the right time to continue to add more uh, taxes to certainly the business community as we move forward. We've also seen in the governor's uh, budget that he wants to increase B&O tax a concern for us on a lot of our service sector uh, members. He wants to raise an increase of B&O by some 67% that Clay will talk about, and then a capital gains, and then also a REIT tax on top of real estate. So uh, the budgets, we're going to have some real concerns about it as we move forward. So Clay, you want to take it over, talk a little bit about the budget and some of the stuff you see uh, around the budget coming forward. Thanks, Gary. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being with us. 
It's a little bit like a Puxatani fill routine you've got going where you come out every year about this time and predict yeah. whether we're going to have a long session. But I do want to say one thing before Clay starts, and I, this won't go against Clay's time. Today, make sure that you email in and wish uh, Clay a happy birthday. Yeah. Today is Clay's birthday, so happy birthday. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Well, 2017-19 uh, is the biennium budget we're just coming out of. And that budget was a $44.7 billion budget. And the proposal for the next biennium budget, 2019-21, from the governor is a $54.6 billion budget. So there's almost a $10 billion increase in one biennium in uh, what's proposed for spending. Um, as you mentioned, a 22.3% increase if, if that budget proposal were to pass uh, as recommended. Well, how much resources do we have? We don't have money for a $54.6 billion budget. We have resources uh, for a $51 billion maintenance level budget. So maintenance level is um, just the, the budget term for continuing current law spending programs, uh, policies, investments, basically getting the same level of service commitment uh, that the last legislature voted on. If you were to do that, uh, that would uh, cost $51 billion. We have some money left over in an unrestricted balance, and we're expecting $50 uh, billion in tax revenue to be collected. So if you put those together, you could get a $51 billion maintenance level budget. So to get to this $54.6 billion, the governor needed $3.6 billion in new, new revenues, new taxes. And as you, as you mentioned, Gary, there's a proposal for a 9% uh, tax on capital gains income. And the 9% number jumped out at me. If you go to awb.org, you'll see an Olympia Business Watch blog about the rate creep in the, in the proposals. Um, for capital gains tax. We've seen proposals in previous biennia for capital gains tax that started at 5%. Uh, there were some at 6, 6.5, then 7, and now we're up to 9%. And uh, so we would go from a state that doesn't have any capital gains income tax uh, to being a state with the fourth highest capital gains in income tax if this were, were to pass. And one of the reasons that the uh, rate needs to be as high as it is to generate uh, a lot of money is because uh, there, it's a narrow uh, tax that's being proposed. There are quite a few carve-outs. For example, uh, residential uh, capital gains from residential real estate is being called out. Um, certain uh, agricultural uh, livestock uh, capital gains income, certain uh, timber is, is being uh, cold out. Um, but nonetheless, you need a high rate to generate a lot of money if you're going to have all these exemptions. And one of our concerns is there would be nothing in the uh, in law uh, to prevent future uh, lawmakers from just broadening that base out every time they need a little bit new money, uh, delete some of those exemptions or deductions from the capital gains calculation. Another way that they get to the $3.6 billion is with uh, the 67% increase in service B&O. And um, so if you're a business out there and, and you're taxed at the service and other B&O category, they're talking about moving your tax rate from 1.5% to 2.5%. And 
And that level of increase has been proposed before by the governor, but uh, lawmakers have um, not always looked favorably on that level of increase. There's usually been some, uh, uh, by the time the, legisl- or the, the lawmakers get together in committee, they tend to be hearing a bill that has a 0.3 uh, increase from 1.5 to 1.8 in the past. So it'll be interesting this year if that same level of increase that's been proposed is actually what lawmakers decide to chew on and deliberate on. Uh, real estate excise tax. This is a proposal we saw first in 2017 from the then finance chair, uh, Christine Litton, was a proposal to go from a flat rate on real estate excise tax to one where it depends on the value of the property that's being sold. This is a transfer tax paid by the purchaser. And um, so we're talking about an increase that would go from a 1.28% to as much as 2 or 2.5%. The, the increase is being on properties that are valued at more than a million dollars or more than $5 million. You get an even bigger increase in your REIT. And this would fund some offset if your property is valued at less than $250,000, your REIT would be uh, lowered. So uh, that's, uh, and then they have one other source of revenue and that's from a Wayfair fixed bill. We had a big Supreme Court decision on online sales taxes. Uh, in the interim and there's some adjustments in our code uh, to keep pace with that change in uh, in law that would generate some revenue but within that bill they're looking at something called an import exemption if you get goods that are imported to you from out of country uh, we it's flowing in uh, sort of foreign commerce coming into the state We've had an exemption where the, the companies sending those goods in don't have to participate in our B&O. And uh, there was in, in early drafts that have been floated for agency request legislation on this Wayfair bill. There have been proposals to repeal or, or um, really narrow that import exemption. And that's got some of our members concerned. We're going to be watching that. There's a, a new iteration of that bill that will be, uh, that's being circulated. And so the final, the final language that we'll see actually uh, dropped and proposed as a bill, I haven't, I haven't seen yet, but we'll be looking at what's going on with that import exemption. So those are the new revenue uh, programs uh, for this budget. So let me ask you, Clay, a couple um, is one of the concerns that's always been voiced when you go after a capital gains tax is, if it's in the budget, it's not gonna be able to be collected for a year or two. So there's going to be a lag, and how do they handle that in the budget when you're, the governor's winning a $54 billion budget, but if you put a capital gains tax in place, you're not going to be able to collect that for a year or two. And isn't a capital gains very volatile? Mm-hmm. It will really go up and down, and so the legislature is going to have a challenge on how do they know and when do they spend that they don't overspend, and then the capital gains doesn't come in and leaves them in the lurch in the next budget. Yeah, you're right, Gary, to hit on, on some of those concerns we've had in the past is first implementing a, a, a major new revenue source has its own challenges. Uh, these are, you're talking about um, as many as 40, 50,000 uh, folks in a given year needing to file a new type of return um, with the department. And so they're going to have to staff up, they're going to have to train their people, and people are going to have to learn how they interact with the department as these hard copy returns, as this new software, and on, uh, you know, uploading uh, some, some new form. How, how the mechanics of a rollout uh, go is, is a concern, um, and, and it takes time 
for the department to sort of staff up and money. It's a pretty expensive uh, thing to administer. And then you have the, uh, the uncertainty about whether such a tax would survive scrutiny in the courts. Um, there are nonprofit uh, groups who have said that they would, um, they've already sort of put in the press that they're ready to sue if and when a capital gains tax passes to challenge its constitutionality in our courts. As, as folks may know if you've read some of our blogs and materials, we have a unique state constitution that has a broad definition of what is property and that is uh, basically anything that is possibly subject to ownership. <laughs> and that would include, you know, things like stocks and bonds or the, or the income from sales of stocks and bonds could be considered property. And we have some strict constitutional provisions about what your tax looks like on property. It can only be uh, no more than 1%. It has to be uniform. And, uh, and so I think there are people who would challenge that. And, uh, and there's been some uh, cases five, six decades ago and uh, that have laid some groundwork that have, have looked and said, yeah, income is property. So um, unless the courts overturn that, there's going to be a, a risk that even if they pass it, they can't rely on this revenue uh, to fund major programs because they just may never see it. The courts may strike it down. And then there's this issue of volatility. Even if it survives scrutiny in the courts and you get this money coming in, we all know from our common experience when, when the market really goes down and your stocks and bonds lose a lot of value, that's the time you hold and you don't sell. So you end up having banked on this revenue, not seeing a, a downturn coming maybe, and then a downturn comes and all of a sudden you've doubled your pain because a lot of money isn't going to come in from people realizing gains on their stocks and bond sales. And that's what makes this really volatile, uh, difficult to rely on. Uh, for really fundamental programs that you know help serve the vulnerable, um, you certainly wouldn't want your mental health or your education or so on staffing levels to be uh, dependent on that revenue source. So, if there's any questions out there, please uh, send us a question if you have one, and we'll make sure it's answered. And the last one, very shortly, is on the real estate excise tax, or let's go to the the uh, increase in the BNO because I think. The increase in BNO is really going to affect a lot of smaller businesses in the service sector. Uh, as you said, they've never gone this high. I think uh, Governor Gregoire was the last one that raised it um, up to, I think she raised about 30%. But that was in a downturn of the economy. The budget was tanking as a way to do a stopgap method. This one here, our revenue was growing. And why would you be putting another tax on that sector out there? That's right. You know, um, really interested to see where the temperature of lawmakers are when they get to to Olympia next week. When they passed this in the uh, previously, it was the depths of recession, 2010, and it was written in with a built-in expiration uh, that it would phase out in 2013. And um, there were some proposals to not let that expire, but um, you know the the. The majority opinion uh, of the lawmakers then was that uh, they were going to keep the faith of that being just a short-term temporary emergency measure uh, to, to bridge our financial difficulties during the Great Recession. And it would be interesting to see if temperature of our citizenry has really changed since then and is reflected in the temperature of the lawmakers who represent them. So a question came in, and I think this is a good one on capital gains, does capital gains tax allow for losses to be considered? 
Oh, well, so the the revenue bill from the governor on this capital gains tax hasn't seen the light of day yet. And I'm really going to look at it. I was thinking about it uh, last night. You know, if you uh, you get a twenty-five or fifty thousand uh, dollar exemption, uh, the first twenty-five or fifty, depending on whether you're a single filer or a joint filer. But if you are a uh, husband and wife uh, couple, and uh, the wife is smart enough to sell her stock that she owns for for a gain, and you uh, sell one at a loss because you made a bad choice and it's only getting worse, so you sell for a loss. Are they netting those out at the end of the year, and you have a net? A netting over the course of a year of whether or not you're over the threshold or is it each transaction each each sale of, of uh, stock or bond if you have more than fifty thousand dollar gains then it's a it's qualifying and, and a taxable event uh, there's going to be some stuff in the weeds of this bill that we need to look at closely we'll share with all of our partners here at AWB if it concerns your business please contact me we need to see uh, exactly how this bill gets drafted more than most bills especially with with a new tax uh every every comma and every uh every period and it, it all needs to be examined very carefully i think it's going to be interesting because those that rely on their stocks and bonds for retirement we've certainly seen volatility in the market lately mm -hmm. and so uh you may be selling as the market's coming back up but you originally were way up here and now you're selling still lower, so are you going to have to pay on this lower value, mm -hmm. or do you get that off in between? So it's got a lot of questions in it, so uh, stay tuned. Make sure you keep in touch with Clay as we move forward and as the legislature starts to delve into. I will tell you the latest polling we've seen, public still is not in favor of a capital gains tax or an income tax. It has been changed some but the public is still not there. And I really believe we're not gonna have all of these taxes. I think they're gonna settle on maybe one, but uh, we'll see which way it's gonna be. So thank you, Thanks, Claire. Gary. Next, I'm gonna ask uh, Peter Godlinski, Godlewski. <laughs> Sorry, Peter. Peter is the new one on the block. And so Peter just joined AWB. Peter, if you want to kind of give a little background to yourself, we're really glad that we have Peter on. I think his background's gonna be great. He's gonna be taking on our environmental issues, our climate issues, water resource issues, uh, all of those. So, Peter, thanks for being with us, and welcome to your first opportunity to do that. Well, thank you, Gary. I'm, uh, I'm pleased to be here at the, as the newest member of the team here at AWB. Uh, to provide a quick background, uh, before joining AWB, I spent the last three years down in Portland working for a federal navigation trade association, which focused on uh, federal funding for the Columbia Snake River system and then co coastal ports in Oregon and Washington. Uh, before that, I spent 10 years working in Washington politics, including a little stint um, as a session aide. So not totally unfamiliar with the happenings in Olympia. Um, really thrilled to be back here in Washington and uh, digging into some of these issues. Uh, as many of you have likely heard, uh, this, one of this year's big pushes is going to be climate and energy uh, bills. Um, and I'm probably going to be spending the majority of my time working on those issues. Uh, the Democrats did very well, as many of you have heard, in the last elections, both increasing their lead in the House and also in the Senate, giving them very solid major uh, control over all three uh, levels of the state government. Uh, combined with the failure of 1631 and the governor's longstanding support of a climate bill in the past, uh, there is a lot of pressure on the legislature to make a, a big push on carbon this year. Um, while, while there is going to be several different proposals floating around, I don't expect to see, um, because of the defeat of um, I-1631, carbon pricing to be a very big um, 
player this time around. Washington voters have twice already said no to this, so most of the proposals I believe we'll be seeing won't focus on carbon pricing. Uh, back in December, the governor uh, released his plan to uh, reduce Washington's um, carbon emissions uh, by 16 million metric tons, which would uh, reduce uh, Washington's overall emissions profile by 25 percent compared to 1990. Uh, there are several elements to his plan, um, many of which will be inflected in the bills which uh, come up this year. Uh, the largest and probably the biggest one amongst them is his 100 percent clean electricity proposal, uh, which has the state um, producing all of our electricity from fossil fuel free sources by 2045. Uh, this is the bill that um, is called the Washington Clean Energy Transformation Act. Uh, there's a couple different uh, uh, cutoff deadlines. Um, 20, utilities have until 2030 to become uh, carbon neutral in their generating capacity. They'll be able to use credits and other offsets to account for any on um, existing uh, car uh, emitting uh, generation capacity, but they are there is a um, increasing push to make them have to uh, become carbon free by that final deadline of 2045. Uh, the bill also gives the UTC lots of rulemaking and regulatory authority for changing how uh, utilities can pay for electricity generation. Uh, but there is no direct price on carbon. There is an administrative penalty which is uh, assessed on non-compliant utilities after uh, 2025, but um, that's, that's being couched as more of a, uh, a penalty as opposed to a carbon pricing. Um, this is an extremely ambitious bill. There's a lot of moving parts into it. Uh, it changes a lot of details about how Washington businesses and consumers will be getting their electricity and then also how much they're charged for it. Uh, we'll be working and talking with our utility members and other stakeholder groups to uh, see how they feel about this bill and see what other sort of constructive um, input we have uh, as we move forward. Uh, there is one alternative proposal, at least, that's been moving around Olympia. This is actually a cap and trade bill. Uh, it's difficult to say how much uh, traction this bill will be getting. Uh, across the border, Oregon is expected also to be making a big carbon push, and their form will be a cap-and-trade bill, which is similar to what California has already done. Um, if the governor's preferred bill gets stuck and Oregon does manage to pass their own cap-and-trade bill, that could shift the dynamic in favor to a cap-and-trade in this state, uh, just so that the uh, Democrats can get that big um, that carbon bill passed out. Uh, but it's going to. We'll see how things play out. Uh, the initial push is still going to be the governor's Clean Elect Energy Transformation Act. It looks like uh, another of the governor's proposals is to increase the electrical efficiency of commercial covered commercial buildings greater than 50,000 square feet. Uh, the governor has singled out uh, buildings as the second greatest emitter of carbon in the state, and uh, is looking to reduce the, that impact as well. Uh, this bill uh, would require building owners to make uh, energy, or excuse me, upgrades to their buildings based on energy standards set by the state. Uh, AWB is in favor of a uh, incentive-based proposal as opposed to a mandate-based proposal, and we are working with the governor's office to ensure that these um, there are, to find ways to maximize these incentives for building owners and also to uh, sort of increase the time in uh, phase-in time for some of these other uh, upgrade um, schedule uh, building owners will need to work on. And I'll cover the final elements of the governor's proposals quickly so I can move on to some additional issue areas. Uh, the governor has introduced a low-carbon fuel standard. I'll be working with Mike Ennis on that, and Mike will have more details um, later uh, this morning. Uh, the governor has also called for a bill to ban HFCs. HFCs are hydrofluorocarbons, which are a family of chemicals used as refrigerant. Uh, and they're common in products uh, that cool mostly for um, consumers, household ACs, and refrigerators. Uh, when they leak out of these units, they do have an effect on the carbon, uh, on the climate. So the governor has um, 
tapped an Obama-era EPA regulation that was introduced but never did go into effect. Uh, California passed a similar law. We're working with some of our members to ensure that the uh, law is similar uh, with the uh, respect to uh, the California bill uh, with the phase-in timelines and other elements. Um, and shifting away from the environment, uh, we do expect to see some legislation coming out which looks to implement some of the recommendations from the Oregon, Governor's ORCA Task Force. AWB was a member of the task force over the summer. We had a seat at the table with, uh, for the discussions which helped frame some of those recommendations which came out of the task force. Uh, and we do consent, continue to be uh, concerned about the continued survival of the southern resident uh, killer whale um, pod, pods, I should say. And we'll be continuing with the task force moving forward. Uh, we believe the best course for preserving this uh, southern resident population lies in direct improvements to the Puget Sound habitat. Uh, increased salmon abundance and increased water quality in Puget Sound would provide the best uh, and most direct benefit to the southern residents on a uh, short-term basis. So uh, that's the, what we're looking at this year. Happy to answer any questions. My goodness, Peter, you stuck with right within the timeline. You're I think I did a good hire. Way to go. And, and I will tell you, Peter has really been hitting the ground since he's been here and getting out and meeting a lot of the members and a lot of the players and the different issues. I was curious, Peter, as we've talked in here, when you're talking about clean energy buildings and always going after the private sector on efficiencies in their buildings, where's state government at? Shouldn't state government be the lead? And shouldn't it almost be that state, you take the lead and you go out and make all government buildings whether they're local governments or state government buildings, you make them all uh, the clean, green buildings first and let us know how that worked out and don't complain to us about the cost because you don't seem to care about the cost for us. That's a great point, Gary, and we actually raised that point in our discussions with governor staff over the, um, the building efficiency bill when we met the first time. The governor staff said that they, um, the state does not have a uh, timeline or a path, not necessarily a direct path forward on greening up their buildings. They're just going to do it themselves because they don't need to pass any legislation. Um, he didn't say that much about how they're planning on paying for it or what deadlines there might be or any other ways to sort of ensure compliance across the state. Um, but it's certainly something we'd like to see the state um, focus on. And, and if it, some of these building efficiency upgrades can be extremely expensive. Uh, having the state uh, pave the way and sort of find some of the, uh, the more common ways to help building owners save money would be a great uh, first step, we think. So they don't care. We're going to have a timeline, but the state will do it whenever they get around to it. Yeah. Oh, sounds like government. Any questions of uh, Peter before I let him go? Um, okay. All right. Thank hey, you, thank Gary. you, Peter. Next up is uh, Amy. Uh, Amy, as you know, uh, does health care of which the governor threw a new uh, health care uh, issue on the table uh, just the other day. Don't know if that's for presidential campaigning or whether that's really a fact that we're going to go forward, but he did throw a new issue on the table around health care and basically headed to a single pay system. Um, and then also Amy works the education and the workforce, of which workforce is a major issue that we're really looking at and getting more involved in. So thank you, Amy. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, as Gary mentioned, yes, the governor did uh, drop a public option this week. And with all three houses being controlled by the Democrats, there is a lot of conversation around a single-payer system or universal health care, universal access to coverage. And I want to emphasize that the conversation is around access to coverage because coverage does not necessarily mean access to health care. 
Uh, we are not addressing some key points in healthcare, such as cost, uh, our workforce shortages, as well as reimbursement rates. But that's for discussions further down the road. But I wanted to frame that as we talk a little bit about what is coming in the 2019 session. So the public option that is being proposed is a state-procured health plan that exists alongside and competes with private health plans. It will be offered on the exchange. Uh, provider reimbursements rates are being capped at the Medicare rates. Uh, it is beginning in 2021. All carriers who are offering plans inside the exchange must offer a standard plan at any tier in which they offer at least one plan. The non-standard plans will be allowed to continue on the exchange through 2024, but by 2025, only these standardized uh, plans, such as the public option, will be allowed to be offered on the exchange. It is unclear so far as to what the cost to the state is. Uh, the Healthcare Authority, the Health Benefit Exchange, uh, OIC, will be working through this session to determine the cost to the state. But those who do qualify for the federal subsidy will be able to purchase the standard plan utilizing that. And then just as a side note, uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal has formed a Medicare for All caucus in Congress. She introduced the State-Based Universal Health Care Act and is planning on introducing the Medicare for All Act in this upcoming Congress. And the reason I bring those up is because if these are addressed in Congress, we will be feeling the residual impact here in the state on how we provide health care. Uh, additionally, in healthcare, several bills concerning pharmaceuticals, including uh, pricing transparency, prescription drug pricing transparency, as well as the op opioid issue concerning distribution, uh, as well as the reporting of the uh, prescriptions. And both parties are considering legislation that will address mental health issues in the state, uh, particularly community facilities, workforce, as well as uh, school-based services. Again, we need to hear from you uh, how these issues are impacting your business. We anticipate that the public option that is being put forward will may have an impact on the cost to employers for providing the health care benefit to their employees. So we do need to hear from you on that piece. So let, before you go on, is there any questions on the health care piece? Because let me ask you a couple things if I'm getting this correct. So the new coverage would be at more like a Medicare rate. It would be. So I might get coverage, but will I have access? Because more and more doctors are not taking Medicare patients. Mm -hmm. So if I now go out and get a plan through the state that has got that same rate, so I may have a plan, it's just whether or not I'm going to get access to use that plan. Correct. The reimbursement rates for Medicare uh, are not... Uh, they do not necessarily meet the even uh, actual cost of healthcare. So you do have a lot of providers who are not able to accept those plans. So as I mentioned before, again, we are not addressing things like the cost of healthcare, our workforce shortages, because even if you do have providers that want to take it, you don't have very many because we do have a shortage of providers, whether it's medical doctors, uh, osteopathic doctors, or uh, higher level nurses. Um, and then of course the reimbursement rate. And there again, if you do accept it, then in order for that facility to continue to survive, they're going to have to pass some of those costs that are not getting covered by these onto uh, the rest of the public that is on a, another Correct. entry. Okay. Correct. Yes. Okay. All right, Amy, go on. Okay. Education. And Make sure <laughs> you send us questions and ask questions. That's really what we want to hear from you. Uh, as we get started going into session, if we're not hitting on the right areas, if there's something else in healthcare that we're not addressing, 
please let us know that. So as we go forward in these, please send us questions. Make sure we're capturing what you want. Sure. So in the 2019 session, we'll see efforts to support the early childhood learning system and our child care uh, system through increased access, uh, changes to the state subsidy for child care. Uh, state Superintendent Chris Reichdahl's K-12 budget includes capital gains tax, as Clay discussed, to help fund an additional almost $350 million in investments in the state's primary and secondary education system. And then the state's institutions of higher education and workforce will seek additional funding for instructor salaries, student work-based learning opportunities, as well as incumbent worker training. So in the learning, early learning uh, arena, modernizing the child care subsidy for providers and utilizers is a key priority, uh, not only for the governor, but as well for a lot of the stakeholders. We are seeing a, an inability for people to access child care who are on the state subsidy because it only pays about 27 cents on the dollar. So just like with our health care reimbursement rates, it's extremely difficult for a provider to take a lot of folks who are on that subsidy. So we need to address that. We also need to address the fact that it has a cliff. A person who is receiving the subsidy, uh, once they hit a certain income level, they immediately are bumped off it. So we need to look at how we uh, ladder them off of it and it's not just an immediate, um, la or immediate loss of benefit. The governor is also proposing to increase the number of uh, ECAP slots. That's the Early Child Assistance Program. And then we're also looking at the career and wage ladder for child care workers. This was, a this was legislation that was passed in 2006 but not funded. What it basically does is allow the providers to pay for um, pay the child care provider up to minimum wage. And then anything up and above that that's based on merit or on uh, things such as receiving certain credentials would then be paid by the state, helping to really address that cost issue for child care that we're seeing. In the K-12 through system, uh, looking at things like increasing number of uh, nurses, uh, counselors, as well as um, mental health counselors. We have a workforce issue there, though, but that's also being addressed. Multiple pathways to graduation, such as an investment in more dual credit programs, as well as career and technical education. Uh, an increase in funding for students with disabilities, as well as an increase in funding for teacher professional uh, development. There's also going to be a focus on resources for credit equivalencies. So if you have a kid who really does understand the, um, their math, but they don't need to learn it for a hands-on, incorporating those math skills into a, say, welding class or a biomedical class, we can then allow that child to receive that credit based on uh, that mode of learning. And then finally, in the post-secondary arena, as well as in uh, workforce, state work-study dollars, uh, those have been increasing or decreasing significantly over the past 10 years. We're looking at how do we increase not only the amount of that, but the number of businesses who are participating um, in that effort. Community and Technical College teacher salaries, because of the McCleary decision, we're seeing now that a lot of our K-12 teachers are making more than our Community and Technical College instructors. Who, require, who are required to have at least a master's degree to teach. So we need to look at those inequities. Uh, incumbent worker training, we're looking at, alongside the Washington State Labor Council, an increase in incumbent worker training dollars. Right now, Washington State is about 46th in the nation in the investment it makes in training incumbent workers. So it's a key economic development tool when we want to recruit as well as retain a lot of our businesses here in the state. State need grant for those who are most need to be able to go to post-secondary. We're advocating as we always do to fully fund that. And then there's Career Connect Washington uh, with a $110 million request. We're still 
looking through that and seeing what the details are on that. But based on the basis of that is work-based learning opportunities. So getting students into internships, externships, uh, apprenticeships, which is something we are fully supportive of. So again, we need your support if you're facing those workforce shortages. If you have some programs that are working and we want to be able to show some best practices, please let us know. Amy, on the, the child care, is there still more push to uh, drive up the cost of, health, or of child care and who you hire, degrees they have to have, uh, the education levels that your uh, help has to have? Are those still out there that are causing the cost of child care to go up? So that is part of the discussion. Uh, there is a child care collaborative task force, which we are co-chair for and looking at what types of credentials are required for early childhood learning and child care providers, and making sure that they are not outpricing that provider, that uh, child care worker, to the extent that we continue to lose the, the worker. So yes, it is still having an impact on the cost of child care. Uh, in Washington State, we are lucky. We have a very high quality child care system. The regulations that are in place ensure that. Uh, but we do want to make sure they're they're well trained, but that they and that they are adequately uh, are compensated, but that we don't lose them out of the system. So, if you're uh, one out there that is concerned on the childcare, are you as a business owner having concerns because some of your workers are unable to get childcare, or there's not enough childcare providers out there, so that when a mother uh, gets called and says, sorry, the child care facility she was going to, the person is sick, she has no place to take her child, so she has to take a day off. Are you feeling those impacts out there? So please let us know some of those. So any questions for Amy on education, workforce, health care, <laughs> as we move forward? Nobody's asking questions. Are you sure, Kelly, there's people on the line? So, okay. Right, thank thank you. you. Next, we'll have um, Mike. Uh, Mike has been the ward, uh, the road warrior. He's been out on the road, uh, going around the state, talking about transportation and doing an inspection of the number of the roads to see what quality they're in and stuff, and <laughs> reporting back to the director and saying, "Hey, you need to make a fix here. You need to get some snow trucks up here to move the snow off the mountain, so I can get over it." So, Mike, tell us a little bit about some of your different areas, especially transportation. Yeah, thank you, Gary. Uh, and I can say Eastern Washington in January is very challenging. <laughs> uh, Gary's right, we just got back yesterday from a, a seven city uh, trip across the state, uh, talking to our members, listening to our members about how they feel um, with the possibility of a transportation package being proposed this session. Uh, so I'll get into that here in a moment, but I'll talk about uh, mostly transportation, a little bit of land use, and then I'll touch on rural jobs if I have time at the end. Uh, this year, uh, we are seeing uh, a new committee chair in the House. Uh, Representative Judy Cliburn uh, has decided to retire, uh, and House Democrats appointed Representative Jake Fye to the committee uh, as chair. Jake has been on the committee for a number of years as vice chair. He's from the Tacoma area. We have a great working relationship with Representative Fye. He's um, worked on a number of issues for us in the past, and I'm uh, uh, thrilled that he was able to uh, secure the chairmanship for the committee. Uh, ranking on uh, the House Transportation Committee for the Republicans has also changed. It was Representative Orcutt. It's now Representative Barkas. 
Uh, we have a great re relationship with him too, so looking forward to working with him. And of course in the Senate we still have Senator Hobbs uh, as chair and Senator King as ranking. Uh, this year will be a biennial budget year, um, it, so we'll have a, a, a lot of discussions later in session about the, the, the big two-year budget. Last year, of course, was just a supplemental year, but we'll see uh, a lot more discussions about long-term transportation policies as it relates to uh, the biennial budget. A couple of specific issues that you might find interesting uh, is the, uh, the, the I-5 crossing in Vancouver. Um, there is a pot of federal money that is at risk if the state doesn't show significant progress toward that project. You might recall that the state pulled out uh, funding uh, in that uh, in 2015 and, and that project's sort of been floundering ever since. Um, so there's an effort um, from legislators in Southwest Washington Washington to show uh, what the federal government would call significant pro progress towards that project in order to, to keep the money. Uh, so we may see legislation creating an office uh, for that project uh, later later this year. Uh, and then also you'll see an effort uh, by some folks to accelerate funding for the 167 and 509 project. Uh, it's one of the larger uh, mega projects that was um, approved in the 2015 package. Uh, there's a bunch of business uh, members in that area who want to accelerate the project so it's completed quicker. Uh, that has a cost associated with it, uh, so we're working on uh, trying to find funding uh, in order to do that. Uh, and then lastly, there'll be uh, likely a, a, a toll authorization bill uh, that we'll see um, for the 167 project also. Um, I don't know uh, exactly what the, the prospects of that legislation will be this session, but we'll likely see the bill and uh, have a hearing on it as well. And then getting back to the listening tour, uh, Senator Hobbs is floating the idea of a statewide transportation revenue package this session. Uh, it currently sits at 10 years, $14 billion, uh, and depending on how you do the math, that's larger than the 2015 Connecting Washington package, which was 16 billion, 16 years. Uh, this is 10 years, 14 billion. Um, it includes uh, a number of projects uh, in it um, and a, a number of revenue sources, including a new revenue source that we have not seen associated with transportation packages uh, previously. And it's uh, one of the reasons why uh, we did our listening tour across the state to, to, to really understand where our memberships are to, uh, on, on such a proposal. We wanted to drill down a little bit deeper to understand uh, the temperature of our members on, on, on these, these new taxes. Uh, it includes right now a six cent gas tax increase and a $15 per ton carbon fee. Uh, the carbon fee would be applied similarly to uh, 1631, which was the initiative we saw in November. Um, the, the fee uh, would be $15, which is the same as 1631, but it would be flat. There would be no inflator associated with that fee. Uh, and all the exemptions would be the same as well um, as 1631. Um, all of that money would go to fund projects in the transportation proposal. Uh, one of the reasons why AWB opposed 1631 and why Senator Hobbs did as well um, is all of that revenue that was created by the carbon uh, fee uh, did not go to fund transportation projects. It went into a uh, or it went into uh, a, a fund that an unelected committee would have authority on spending. So we didn't know where the money would be spent. Um, 
Senator Hobbs uh, and many in the business community would like to see that money reserved for transportation projects. Uh, if you're going to go after the transportation industry for reducing emissions and its impact on the climate, then we want to see that money uh, go back into the transportation system in order to reduce that impact. So a couple of key principles that I heard from our members um, during the tour uh, were interesting. Um, the first one, and, and I think the most significant, is this idea that there's still a significant need for additional transportation revenue in Washington. Uh, we saw the, uh, the, the tax uh, package in 2015 fund a whole bunch of projects, uh, but we still have $5 billion of unmet preservation needs in Washington. We also have significant projects out there that need to be funded as well that didn't get in the 2015 package. So a pretty universal agreement among our membership that there's, there's still a need. Uh, secondly was we, want, we would support increased funding for preservation projects. Like I said, uh, there's a $5 billion need. Senator Hobbs is only proposing $1.2 billion to fund preservation projects. Uh, our members, I think, would like to see a larger amount go into preservation funding. Uh, and then thirdly is our members were not enthusiastic um, about a carbon fee in Washington. Uh, there is a broad opposition to that idea. However, there is also this concept that if the legislature is going to pursue a carbon scheme, that that money should be protected for transportation projects. So we want to make sure that uh, lawmakers understand that if they're going to move forward with a carbon fee, we want that money to go to infrastructure and the transportation sector. So let me ask a question there, yeah. Mike, before you go on. A question came in is, uh, with other carbon-related legislation being considered, would the transportation package carbon tax be in addition to other proposed legislation? Good question. Uh, I think we'll see a number of proposals uh, for different types of carbon schemes in Washington. And I don't see schemes in a derogatory way. It's just a, a, w a word to use to explain the different kinds that we'll see. Uh, I think we'll see uh, multiple different kinds of carbon taxes carbon fees, maybe a cap-and-trade system, and also a low-carbon fuel standard. All of these um, schemes are, are related to one another and very similar in how they're applied. I don't think if, if the legislature decides they're going to move one of those, I don't think they're going to move multiple ones. It, they'll just move one of them. They'll, they'll choose to either do a carbon fee or an LCFS or a cap-and-trade. They won't do multiple ones. It'll probably only be one. Um, and the one that I think that probably has uh, the most likelihood of moving this session is a low-carbon fuel standard. Uh, in 2015, the legislature passed a provision that prevents the state from implementing a low-carbon fuel standard in Washington. Um, and basically, a low-carbon fuel standard means that your fuel, it's a requirement that your fuel has to be cleaner in Washington. So the refineries would have to produce cleaner fuel at the pump, which would translate to higher costs. California has a low carbon fuel standard and they estimate that the impact on fuel prices adds about 13 cents per gallon. None of that money goes into funding transportation infrastructure. So if we're gonna have a, this gets back to the, the listing tour, if we're gonna have a, a, a carbon scheme in Washington, we want that money, that revenue that's produced to go into transportation infrastructure. Um, the LCFS bill we've seen uh, in the past and the one that's being proposed this session. There's already a hearing scheduled on it on Tuesday. What undo the provision that prevents the LCFS from 2015? Uh, the business community has generally opposed that concept. 
uh, for two reasons. First, a deal is a deal. The, the transportation package where this provision is contained, uh, we spent many years negotiating uh, an agreement uh, on that proposal. There are things in that proposal that the business community opposes, yet we're not trying to undo them. We respect the idea that it's a fragile uh, agreement among many different parties and everyone had to compromise. Um, so uh, we believe a deal is a deal. I don't want to see the LCFS provision removed. Secondly is the impact on fuel prices. We don't want to have fuel prices increase in Washington when none of that revenue goes to uh, fund transportation infrastructure. And I think part of the question is also though, if I'm going to be, I have a carbon fee over here in transportation on fossil fuels, if there's a clean energy uh, initiative over here that's hitting also on fossil fuels, I'm going to be hit twice. Right. And so. And we, that was a concern that did come up in, in, in our listening tour. Uh, we don't want our members to be charged twice um, if both of those pieces of legislation um, are applied. Uh, so we'll be working with lawmakers to make sure that that, that that doesn't occur. Second question is, the card tab initiative looks like it will qualify. How do you think the changes propose, proposals for the new Senate revenue package that probably includes more increases in card tab fees? Um, good question. So uh, Tim Iman has uh, enough signatures, he claims, uh, I think it's been maybe certified also, uh, as, uh, for an initiative to the legislature to, re to roll back card tab fees, your MVET, uh, to $30. There are a number of agencies, um, both at the state level and local level, particularly Sound Transit, that have implemented card tabs above $30. So this would roll all of those revenue sources back to $30. As long as the agency hasn't bonded that revenue stream already. Once that revenue stream is bonded, the, the, the agency cannot roll it back because they have a fiduciary responsibility to, 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 the, to the investors uh, who purchase those bonds to pay it back. Um, where we'll have to do more research in understanding its impact um, is uh, on the Connecting Washington package. The state did uh, include some, uh, uh, some revenue sources in 2015 that were related to card tabs, uh, and we don't know exactly what the impact of that will be if it's rolled back to $30. Most of those dollars probably went to bike, ped, and transit projects uh, because it's not protected by the 18th Amendment. Generally, all gas taxes are protected by the 18th Amendment and can only be used for roads. So lawmakers look for these other revenue sources that are not protected by the 18th Amendment to fund infrastructure that, that, that isn't roads um, related, like bike, pet, and transit projects. So I don't think we'll see a big impact on the road side of the equation, uh, but we probably will on the bike, pet, and transit uh, side of the equation. Um, with the, the impact on Senator Hobbs's proposal, I, I don't believe he's currently looking at increasing car tabs uh, in this particular package. Um, that could change. He has not dropped a bill yet. It's not, uh, it don't have anything on paper, um, but as it currently sits now, he's not looking at an in-vet increase. So I don't think the impact would be all that great on his proposal. And one last question. Are you anticipating that AWB would support a carbon tax uh, if it is spent on transportation? Uh, that's that's a good that's another great question and it's a question that we've um, proposed to our membership uh, with the listening tour 
Um, we're, like I said, I just got back from that tour yesterday. Uh, my next step is to pull together the transportation committee uh, to go over the results uh, of what we heard uh, and to talk about how we want to move forward. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we, it, we can't take a position on legislation when we don't have a bill in front of us. I don't know exactly what the proposal looks like. Um, all I have is a, dis is, is a verbal discussion with uh, stakeholders on what they think it's going to look like, and we don't take positions uh, in that way. So we, we, we need to talk about it further, uh, let the issue mature a little bit, and uh, go from there. I think this is going to be a hot issue moving forward. Uh, as the previous question asked, there are several bills that are going to be out there around carbon. Um, I think uh, the carbon issue is on our favor. The public has voted down twice carbon taxes. Uh, so I think we have to watch how do we play through that. But at the same time, we want to make sure that uh, one segment of government is not putting a carbon tax on and then the business also gets hit over here with another carbon tax. So we're going to have to work those all out this session. Uh, it's very, very important that you are on the call and our members are really engaged this year, whether it be in the transportation side or whether it be in our environmental side and our climate side to watch all of these as we uh, work through the process. So thank you, Mike. Yeah, thank you, Gary. Thank you, everybody. Next is Bob Battles uh, handles the employment law issues and certainly as we've seen in uh, the legislature, certainly in the House, a lot of pent-up frustration on a lot of employment law issues that have not been able to go very far. They've always been stopped in the Senate. Uh, now that the House and the Senate numbers have changed, are a lot of those now going to be able to uh, pass out? And I think that's a question we still don't know. It was still kind of in the air talking with leadership the other day with the change that we've seen within the House and also thrown in the mix of the elections, also with the decision of Speaker Chop to step down sometime towards the end of session, uh, step down from being Speaker of the House. What is that doing and how are these new members coming in uh, to that caucus? How are they going to play as we go through this session? So. Bob, you want to get into some of the employment law issues? Yeah, thank you, Gary. Um, again, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you folks. Uh, one thing that is going to be assured uh, in this session is it will not be boring when it comes to uh, the uh, employment law issues. Uh, there will be a lot of discussion. How things, I think as Gary mentioned, how things pan out in the end is going to really be depend on some very, very fine nuances on uh, things. I think you're going to see some bills that have been that pent up uh, frustration uh, that are going to move, but I'm not sure they're going to move in the way that those folks like them either. But I don't think we're going to necessarily enjoy them either. I think it's going to be this, this, this uh, uh, quite a bit of discussion. Uh, I'm going to start with one major uh, uh, bill that uh, we, we refer to as restrictive scheduling. I, I literally just got off a phone call, and in fact, I think it's still going, um, and uh, talking about this bill. Uh, it is being pushed uh, by uh, Representative Macri and Senator Saldana. Uh, we are in discussions with also Senator King and Senator Mossbrucker, so we've got some folks in the room. Uh, we are talking about uh, this uh, bill. What this is, is this is a, a sort of mirrors a little bit of what Seattle did on their predictive or secured scheduling bills. Uh, we have, like I said, called it uh, restrictive scheduling. It's going to create a system where we have a limitation on how you can adjust your employee schedules. 
Uh, you, you have to uh, schedule two weeks in advance. You have to not change that schedule on them. You have to have a good faith discussion on scheduling. Uh, there's a lot of things in there. There are penalty discussions on this. We're concerned about uh, the current bill as in it's, as is drafted. It has some of the provisions we do not care about regarding the 90-day presumption that if you do anything, once somebody's brought up a scheduling issue, that it becomes a presumption that you're retaliating. All of these provisions are, are concerns. Um, I will say that the bill is not final. There are discussions happening, and, and all of those legislature, legislators are in the room talking about it. Uh, at the end, I don't know if we will have a bill that, that, that we can get behind, but we are working with uh, folks about how to get this bill at least better if it does move. We have heard that there may be uh, a lot of discussion uh, this year on it. We don't know whether it's going to actually get out of the legislature. So that's a big uh, concern. What we need from folks, though, is this really kind of those stories that talk about how this is going to really uh, cause problems within their industry. It's focusing right now, though, on the fast food, hospitality, retail uh, type uh, industries. Uh, it has not expanded yet to uh, your agricultural or construction, uh, but uh, there always is that concern that they could. So that's a big one. So let me ask you, Bob, on that, because I know that one of the issues that has happened in Seattle is around franchises. So. If you're a franchisee, uh, you're tied to your mothership if they're over 500 employees. In this case, it's, it's under 100. Yes, the same thing. Only in this case, it's going to be about 150 uh, employees. And so you are still tied to your mothership. And so if you have a franchise, uh, your franchise uh, gets counted as part of the overall global uh, industry or global company. So you may be a franchise operator out there that has five employees that are going to be brought into a scheduling system like this here that makes it very difficult to schedule with five or six employees. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that we had uh, that was a real concern today uh, in the discussions have been like hotels. You know, one day they may have 30 room occupancy and the next day they may have a 10 room occupancy. You can't really schedule for that. I mean, yes, you might know that there's a convention in town, but you don't know if there's a snowstorm and all of a sudden your hotel is going to be full because all the power is going out. How do you schedule for those things without, again, being penalized because you have to bring people in because you need to have those rooms cleaned. You need to. So this is a real concern of us and those are the issues. And so, yes, you will be uh, captured in the, in the franchise. Uh, the, uh, the next one, it's a, a big discussion, is the non-compete agreements. Uh, these are, again, we've talked about for uh, the last four years, are a tool that is used uh, by employers to uh, help in, in uh, you know, uh, protecting some of that, that intellectual property, protecting the, the, the work that they go into developing those employee, uh, employer relationship, and uh, trying to uh, allow employers and, and employees to have a balance. Uh, these non-compete agreements are uh, looking at, an, uh, we, we were close to an agreement last year. Uh, the big sticking point in this one is really uh, what the salary level would be to whether they're allowed. Uh, what's being proposed now of 170000 essentially eliminates non-competes. It's, it's sort of through the back door getting rid of them. Uh, we are looking to see if we can do something with that salary level. We've really been able to work through a lot of the other issues in the bill, uh, but, uh, but the salary level without that, uh, so try to find some sort of a rebuttable presumption that allows people to kind of have a lower thing. So 
Uh, two, a uh, couple other areas, portability and benefits. Uh, we think that we're going to see at least that discussion up there. People are going to talk about it. One of the things that came out with the paid family and medical leave was this ability for employees to take benefits between employers and move these benefits to where they're not necessarily attached to a particular employer. Uh, we believe that, that that is going to be a continued discussion. I uh, have not seen any particular bills yet on it, but I think it's becoming an issue every time a benefit is being talked about is the portability concept. So that's something we need to keep in mind. Uh, wage and hour, uh, we will see those bills again. These are the uh, perennial um, uh, anti-retaliation wage theft bills that uh, seek to uh, increase penalties and uh, restrictions on, on employers to be able to deal with that at-will situation. Uh, independent contractors, a couple of things are happening here. There was a uh, budget proviso last year that created a study, uh, and that budget proviso uh, allowed, um, uh, is looking at independent contractors and the benefits, so the portability benefits as we talked about. Uh, we have been told that there will be another bill dropped uh, regarding um, uh, independent contractors. Last year, folks may remember, we talked about House Bill 1300. 1300 is what I refer to as the Rube Goldberg of, of independent contractors. It took the seven-part test and created a 13-part test, uh, which was just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so, uh, but we don't know if this one will be as bad, but we also know that there's going to be some provisions. So it's going to be a discussion. Uh, but we also believe that if there's a study going on that's been funded by the legislature that is going to come back on some some ideas on what independent contractor we really believe that that is this is premature to be talking about these bills at this time that we really should be looking forward to uh, the uh, the other thing I want to just quickly uh, remember uh, re uh, talk about is uh, and I bring this up all the time is the rulemaking process that happens out there that's not just legislature um, a lot of folks that are on the, uh, on this webinar know is that the, the agencies have the ability to make rules as well uh, and that, that affect business. And one of the big ones that's out there that is very important to uh, be uh, engaged on is that the EAP overtime rule, which is the executive, administrative, and, and uh, professional overtime rule. This is a uh, rule that started uh, big discussions under the Obama administration where the feds uh, were going to up the salary level to 47000 it did not pass uh, or get uh, adopted before the change in administration. Our legislature uh, put a request to the agency, Labor and Industries, to look at this rule. Rulemaking has been going on. AWB has been involved and engaged uh, from the beginning in this process. Uh, what is coming out of that, though, and what we expect to see in January is uh, the um, first official draft called the CR-102s will be issued and it is going to set that salary level substantially higher than what even the federal government was going to do. They're looking at anywhere from a range of about $57,000 to $70,000 that an employee would have to be paid for them to, be, uh, to not be required to have to pay overtime. This is going to really, uh, especially small businesses, but uh, pretty much all all business across the so expect it. So what level? What uh, amount is it today? Correct. Today's about twenty three thousand dollars. Okay, and so they want to go not up to the forty seven where the feds were. They want to go up, up above and beyond uh, that where you would have to pay uh, an employee over let's say the seventy thousand dot mark before you could exempt them uh, with overtime. The other concern we have, of course, is that it's going to be attached to the minimum, it's attached to the minimum wage, which then means that it's attached to CPI, which means it changes, it changes every year. Every year. Okay. So that, that, uh, that, that's sort of what's happening. We gotta remember all of the rulemaking is happening at the same time, uh, so uh, it's important. 
So let me ask you a question. I think you touched on this, but a question is, uh, as it currently stands, do you think that predictory schedule legislation may bleed over to other industries during the session? I think you kind of touched on that. You know, I think uh, we have been told by the other side that they do not intend to do that in this session. I, I, I take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because uh, they, the folks in the room are not all legislators. And so, uh, you know, any amendment can be added. I also can say that that uh, while it is cons it's parallel to that the same industries as Seattle, s even the Seattle folks, uh, the city council talked about, we intend to expand this beyond that industry. So I, I, I think it's safe probably this session. I cannot tell you that if once this is not out that they won't expand it. Another question, when was the last time the overtime rule was changed? Uh, the, 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 the federal, uh, the, the state overtime rule has been a while, so I don't think any of us are, are objecting to, so you, you got two things. You got the federal overtime rule and the state overtime rule, and you have to go with the higher number. So our state number is low. There's not a real problem with upping that, and I don't think you'd have any objection if we matched the federal. So let me ask you there, our state level right now is about 23. Well, our state level is actually about lower than that. Our 23 is the federal. Did that match up with the feds? What was the federal level that we had to be at? No, the federal level is 23. The, the state okay. is lower. Um, what, what also was in there is of some other things called the duties clauses. Uh, and and uh, one of the proposals, so I will tell you that not all is bad in, in trying to clean this rule up in the sense that the uh, duties clauses uh, LNI is proposing would match up with the federal duties clause, which means um, there's two kind of factors here. You have to be a certain, do a certain type of work. You have to be meet certain duties requirements in your process that would uh, qualify you to be exempt. In addition to that, you have that salary requirement that says I, uh, you have to make at least this much because if you're below that, even if you have the duties, you're not going to get, you have to get overtime. So in this case, they're talking about aligning the duties clause. So that we're fine with that. And if they, if they match the federal, and also the federals are actually looking at upping their rate. The, we just got notice here in January. Uh, they, had done a, they had done a tour uh, through Seattle, and we testified at uh, on the federal level on the duties clause, or on the, on, the, on the overtime rule. And they're looking at proposing somewhere in the range of 35 to 38,000. Again, all of those things would be you know, consistent, and I think that the impact would be minimal on employers. The fact that you are going to go up to 57 to 70,000, the impact is substantial. You are going to eliminate some of your middle management folks. You're going to require, and I think you're going to see. Uh, we've we've heard from uh, well, uh, not a lot of folks here, but nonprofits are 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 going to be devastated by this. They they will not. It will not result in paying somebody more. What it will result in is a reduction in the mission that they they do. Okay. Any other questions that you have on this? Another question coming in. I guess I, I will, while we're waiting for a question, I would say on the, on the overtime rule especially, what we would really like to hear from um, folks out there uh, is as we prepare to how we will challenge this rule if in, and to the extent we challenge this rule, it's important to get those stories right now. The folks that meet the duties, but based on that salary level, would no longer qualify for the exemption. That, that's very important. Uh, so this is an interesting question because uh, it, it basically is saying, so uh, could they propose uh, that the state rate simply match the federal rate 
allowing Washington rate to change as the federal rate changes, wouldn't that simplify things going forward? But even though sometimes the federal weight, we may agree to it, this legislature right now oftentimes will take and say, oh, the feds, you are way too low, so we're going to go up over and above it. That's basically what is, is going on. Right That's now. exactly right. I mean, you don't have, uh, yes, we, we, we would all agree that if the, if the law was going to be adopt the federal weight, you're all subject to that already. We wouldn't be having this discussion. Um, unless the federal rate well, unless the federal rate goes up high, uh, but yeah, no, there, uh, they, uh, we would expect to see that that there's a, uh, yeah, that, that's that's one way we would love to, to see that happen if they match it, assuming this federal rate doesn't go too high like what they did with the forty-seven. Right. Okay. Any other questions? So we actually are getting quick, done quicker than we'd anticipated. Uh, I was hoping and thought there'd be way more questions, but you're getting a flavor of some of the issues that will be uh, going on this next session. Uh, we've already seen an awful lot of pre-file bills that are coming out. Uh, we know certainly that not all of those issues are gonna go forward. Uh, it's gonna be interesting, as I said, with the mix of new legislators coming in, a number of new legislators even on the Democrat side or more moderate, more business-minded, have businesses on their own that these issues are going to affect them. And how does that play out in that caucus? So these are going to be all issues that, as we start to move this session, my biggest question and my biggest ask from you that are out there is um, my feeling is, is that it is a lot better for us to have one of our members come in and testify before a committee than it is to have Bob to come in and testify. So if some of these issues are very important to you, then let us know that you'd be willing to come in and testify and share your story as the impact of whether it be restrictive scheduling, how will you as a franchise operator be able to operate on a scheduling when you only have six employees and you have an employee call you up in the morning and say, sorry, my child is sick, I've got to stay home, but you've only got one other employee that it's their day off, and if you call them in, then you as the employer are gonna get uh, penalized for that. So it makes it very difficult for small businesses and how are they gonna operate within this. And so if you have those type of stories, those are the ones that we need to have people come over and share and testify before the legislature. So whether it's that or whether it's a transportation, whether it's carbon or any of the other questions, please uh, let us know if you can come over and help us. Uh, one other question, Bob, how will this affect the employment agencies going forward? They are great at supplying a worker at a moment's notice. Yeah, you know, you you, they, they hit the nail on the head on this one. Uh, uh, there is uh, a concern, and we don't know yet how this bill is going to affect that. Uh, we've raised that concern that fundamentally their operation is to provide at a moment's notice. Uh, someone that goes to work with a, with an employment agency is it's assumed that you're going to have maybe a different location every day. And uh, the whole purpose of having them is to be able to fill somebody when they're gone on a temporary basis. So uh, you're, you're absolutely right. We know that on the uh, federal level, there's a, or nationwide, there have been some jurisdictions that have adopted this. And some of those temporary agencies are contemplating whether they will serve those jurisdictions anymore because of towns and cities and everything, because it's being adopted at that kind of level at times. And, and they don't know yet. They, 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 some of them are early enough that they have, they have moved operations out to whether they even send it, people in hasn't been decided. So, 
So uh, other than that, uh, we uh, um, we think that uh, it, it is likely that uh, we will have. Um, I said it's a, it's an absolute good question. We don't know yet because we haven't seen a final bill. Uh, and and I think as Mike said before here, uh, to comment on a bill, we don't until it's final. We won't know. But that's that provision is a concern. You know. Okay. So another question I'm going to have Clay come back in here is the question is. Uh, on the budget, did I understand you to say earlier that the Washington B&O rate was 2.5 in the year 2003? I believe what you're referring to is the comment that um, in the downturn of the economy, the B&O rate for uh, service sector was raised. It was not raised up to the 2.5. I believe it was lower than that. Uh, but I think it was raised at that time about 30%. Clay, a question came in, and I think I'm right on this. The question is, did I understand you to say earlier that the Washington B&O rate was 2.5 in 2003? I think they're referring back to the service sector. I think it was raised maybe, whether it was in that 2003, for a temporary, but it wasn't raised to 2.5. That's right. It, it was raised from 1.5 to 1.8 which is a 20% increase, that 0.3 was the language, I, I guess, that I used between 1.5 to 1.8. Yeah, okay. So yes, it did not go up to 2.5 if this was to pass. I think this is the highest that it's ever gone. I don't believe the service sector rate has gone over that 1.8 that I remember. That's right. And, and it was and just for a, a period of time, I think two or four years, that it was put in and it was removed, I believe. That's right. It phased out in 2013. And, and when Governor Inslee proposed uh, this uh, service B&O increase in 2017, it was, again, it, he was looking at this rate increase from 1.5 to 2.5. But what actually came out in the bill that the House Finance ended up considering was uh, a smaller number. Uh, again, that, that same thing that they had done before, a 0.3 on top of the 1.5 to get them up to 1.8, so. But that bill never went anywhere. That's right. Okay, all right, any other questions? Okay, so once again, thank you very much for um, tuning in with us this morning. If you have more questions, you weren't able to get them out, uh, send them to us or give us a call. Uh, give me a call if you want us to come speak at any of your groups or do weekly uh, calls. Um, let us know, um, and we're here to help you out. So once again, the biggest thing I want to stress is we really need your help during session to get people to come in and help uh, testify on issues. So with that, I'm going to say have a good afternoon and a great weekend, and hope we get a lot of snow in the passes. Thanks for listening. To stay up to date on all issues relevant to employers in Washington State, please click subscribe. We'll talk to you next time.